0: is a little bit exciting. <clears throat> Good morning. Welcome to uh, Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you are here to worship with us on this Lord's Day. And uh, this is the first day of the month, which means that it is also um, uh, the time that we spend around um, the Lord's Table, which means that we will celebrate uh, communion together. Oh, yeah, I know, all these interesting things. We can talk about that, these interesting things. Um, We are studying in the Book of Romans, but before we get there, just wanted to make a a couple of announcements so we kind of know what to expect today. Like I said, today is uh, the first Sunday of the month, um, where we typically, the Sunday when we typically celebrate the Lord's Table together. And so if you're a believer and you have professed your faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation and have been baptized on the profession of that faith, we encourage and and invite you to participate with us in in terms of the celebration of the Lord's life, death, and His resurrection for us. (laughs) Like, all of a sudden, my voice turned to Darth Vader almost, right? So hopefully that's not too distracting to you. Um, And then... uh, um, for our second hour, we just have a, 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 a small announcement. I mean, it's not major, but for our adult Sunday school classes, our equip hour classes that will be taking place, um, I believe they're both starting at 11. Is that correct? Right? They're both starting at 11 because um, the, the Korean church has asked use of the fellowship hall um, to celebrate something, and so we want to we be very amenable to our gracious hosts that way. So if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, we'll be, uh, we'll be taking this in two parts. Uh, it is, uh, uh, today is, uh, um, is Communion Sunday, and so we're just going to be looking at the first part here, the, the part that is probably more defining for us as far as how the gospel is applied to government um, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 in its entirety in a couple of weeks, Next week I'll be uh, visiting with another church, um, preaching for a pastor friend, and so um, this this week and then in two weeks we'll finish up this entire section from one through seven. And let me start with this: like of all the the passages of the Book of Romans that I might have thought we might encounter some controversy, I'll tell you, um, Romans thirteen one through seven is it was not one of those passages. It, as we'll see in verses 1 and 2, it, it comes very directly to us in terms of its explanation and the implication of why Christians are to submit to God-ordained government. I, I'm just going to say it that way because uh, um, it, may, it may offend some, it may tweak some, and um, if, you, if you are on social media, it will tweak many that call upon the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord. Many brothers and sisters in Christ, who find that our current form of government is difficult at best and, um, and absolutely um, undeserving of any respect at worst. But imagine, if you will, that our government was different than it is currently constituted. Imagine instead of um, a very senior president, can I say it that way, Right? That the the leader of the free nation, or, or, or the what, what do they say, the leader of the free world? Thank you. The re- leader of the free world, the president of the United States, was in fact instead an inexperienced teenager. And let's say that that inexperienced teenager came into power, um, not necessarily because you know because people really thought that he could he could do good stuff, but because of his lineage. Because of his family name. Because he comes from wealth and from power. And that that was kind of how people in positions of authority are appointed. Let alone, let's say this young teenager who has no experience becomes emperor. You can kind of see where we're going with this, right? Becomes emperor over us, our nation, our empire, our peoples. By some suspicious means. The previous emperor, Claudius, uh, I already gave it away, right? Previous president, right? Um, let's say that he died because of poisoning from eating certain mushrooms. Right? It's like, okay, that's a little bit fishy, but all right. But let's say the, the, the stepbrother, who was um, similarly a rival to the potential throne, died in exactly the same way from eating poison mushrooms. I mean, I guess fool me twice, shame on, shame on you, right? Or shame on me? Shame on me. Um, and so, um, let's say that the rumors begin to persist that uh, the former emperor and the other rival to the throne may have been murdered by his mother. Now, man, this is, this is not exactly the first family you hope for. Right, He comes into office. Why? Father's been murdered. Brother's been murdered. And the person probably responsible is his own mom. In fact, she is so murderously ambitious that eventually he has her killed. So I guess we wipe, we wipe the slate clean. Once in office, he begins to dismantle much of what um, many of uh, the rulers of uh, the nation or the empire value Um, in terms of honor, in terms of uh, um, the governance of the people. Initially, he does good. He reduces taxes. I, I assume most of us would think that that would be good. Unfortunately, he vastly increases spending, particularly in the area of arts and in luxurious living. He accuses his first wife of adultery and has her killed. He probably murdered his second wife by kicking her pregnant stomach until she died. He gains a reputation for being involved with married women and then with young boys. He eventually marries, marries his male partner. He he begins to usurp his authority into areas where he flexes his power over the other branches of government and begins to ignore them. As far as spiritual things are concerned, he begins to hate the Christian faith and attack its leaders, even putting many of them to death, and putting them to death in horrific and, um, and entertaining, in a wicked way, ways. Right? Like... Um, Tacitus, a Roman historian, says this. After the flames died down, meaning when half of Rome burned down, Nero apparently, and this is who we're talking about, tried to cast blame on the Christians at, the time of a fa- at that time of a fairly small sect. And this is what Tacitus says. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their death. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Now listen, I, I don't know where you are politically. Maybe you're glad for where we are as, as a nation. Maybe you are somewhat glad but somewhat you know apprehensive of where our nation is. Maybe you are just disappointed entirely at how everything is going and you're considering moving to Texas right I, I don't know you you might be in any particular place as far as this government is concerned, but so that we are clear when we enter into these first two verses of chapter three and it speaks to our application of our redemption of what it means for us to be a believer, someone who has placed our faith in Christ, and that our entire worldview has been transformed, when the scriptures commanded to st- command us to submit to God-ordained government, there has not been a government like that government. It was Emperor Nero to whom Paul, in Acts 25, appeals by way of appealing to the emperor. The persecution of Christians, the horrific persecution of Christians, is about to unfold in about a decade or two, right after the writing of this book this letter, to the Roman Christians. So before we get, right, on our soapbox, and again, I'm not, I'm not busting your chops. If you're dissatisfied with government, I think there's room for that, especially in our form of government. But let me just say this. As we struggle with our discontent with our governing authorities, understand that the context of the New Testament is situated squarely in one of the most atrocious governments that we might imagine. So with that in mind, we approach this passage of Scripture and we consider the call for Christians to submit to God-ordained government. Look at verse 13. I'm going to read 1 through 7, but we're going to unpack 1 and 2, which has um, a lot of the theological meat for us to chew on. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Let's take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to give us um, this instruction to our souls. Heavenly Father, even as uh, we come before you, Lord, give us the humility to recognize our place in church history. To recognize that we we do not live in the worst of times. And that is certainly not to excuse, Lord, some of the uh, rapacious and wickedness uh, that that comes from corrupt people in government. Lord, we recognize that we live in a non-Christian world. And help the Christian. Help those that believe that our existence is so much more significant than merely surviving and flourishing in this life alone. Help these believers embrace your truth, to hear the call and uh, um, the command to live in subjection to individuals that are hard to submit to sometimes, and help us to be gracious, even in our differences, in our disagreements. So that we might grow in love and grace towards one another. And we might exemplify that very thing which the world seems to find so difficult to do. Unity amongst diversity. Differing opinions and differing thoughts. And nevertheless, encouragement, faith, and love. So grant us, Lord, this time that we might grow in your grace, in your truth. And that we might submit ourselves to our God first and foremost. Into whatever authority you have placed sovereignly above us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have as believers and as the church a very distinct and clear um, relationship with governing authorities. I give you just by way of example before we even dive into this, first Timothy chapter two is a call for Christians to pray. And it says there, first of all, verse 1 of 1 Timothy 2, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So there is a unique relationship that the Christian has to, to his or her governing authorities. And, and I think the, the most simple way to, to call it out in verses 1 and 2 is that we are to submit to God-ordained government, right? There we go. The, there we go, right? And, and I'm just going to make three points in verses 1 and 2. One is be subject to governing authorities. There's a command there. Secondly, recognize authority as God ordained. God's the one that established them. And the third, don't oppose God-appointed authority. Pretty clear. So let's begin. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. So there's the command, be subject to governing authorities in the first part of verse 1. And, wait, what happened? Uh Uh-oh. We need to go back a couple. (laughs) Okay, um, we will assume that that this will all get better. See, like, there's a problem if you start your outline and the first letter is B, right? So that's probably my fault, right? Something probably happened there, and A is missing. So... (laughs) Don't look at B, you know? That's like looking at the end, right? Like, what, what, I, I don't know what's happening. Let, let, don't look up there. L- look down to your scriptures, okay? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And point A under be subject to governing authorities is submission is a clear command. Submission is a clear command. Perhaps someone on the worship team feels a little differently about this and just eliminated some of the things that they didn't like. I don't know. But point A is that submission is a clear command. Listen to it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let's examine what that means. Because literally, you could translate that entire phrase this way. Let all souls, or every soul, be submissive to governing power. It's the term "suke," which doesn't just mean psyche, but it refers to the human soul. It is a way to reference not just human beings as people or as citizens, but it's saying, let every human whole person. So, right, by saying let every soul, it's like saying let every person. If you're a human, if you're a person, if you're an image bearer, if you're made in God's image, this applies to you. So it applies to all human beings on this planet. It would be a command to them, but particularly as it is written in a letter to Roman Christians and for our good, a couple thousand years later, the idea is that it applies to us, right? The command is that we are to be subject or place ourselves in submission to governing authorities. The, The word for submission is very significant. It's a word that would naturally be unpopular to uh, the, the independent-minded, uh, the, uh, the, the individuals that are used to kind of being in control of their own destiny. People like Americans, like us. Right? It, it doesn't sound good that I'm going to voluntarily place myself under the authority of another. It's a word that is used in a military context to say that the soldier submits or places himself under the authority right, and the powers of his his ranking officer. It it, it does include, the word includes a sense of volition or willingness. It, It means that I'm willing to grant leadership to the one that leads me. In the New Testament, this is the same word, "upotasso." it's the same word, submission, that is used to speak of how we are to submit to one another in the body of Christ. Wives are to submit to their husbands. How members are to submit to their leaders. And how Christians are to submit to government authorities. Wait, let's see, do we, have, do we have this back up? You give me a second, sir. Right. <clears> okay. <throat> And as we consider this concept of submission, we need to recognize that it is about um, recognizing or, or seeing that God has placed authority over every person. There is no human being right, that does not live in submission to someone or something. Submission is a clear command. Excellent. Thank you. All right? Oh, man. Okay, well, I'm pushing back and it's going forward. So something happened, and it, at least that part we'll just leave it right there for now. All right, submission is a clear command of Scripture, and it is given to us in different, varying roles of of authority. Uh, I I give you Ephesians 5 to look at there. And, And I want you to notice it from verse 19 through 22 because 21 speaks of submitting to one another. That's underlined there. 22 speaks of wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's underlined there. But look at how we get there, starting in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like the gospel applied to our worship and our attitude of life. Right? It sounds like the redeemed, recognizing what we deserve, eternal damnation and punishment, And what we've received, eternal life and God's grace upon us. Not because we deserve, not because we have earned, not because of anything in us, but despite us, God has been that kind to us. So what is happening? He's saying, let your hearts overfill with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in that context, now submit to one another in the reverence of Christ. And wives submit, Christian wives submit, to your own husbands. Well, let me give you another one. Oh, let me go backwards, and then we get the other one. Right? Uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. L- l- let's pause there for a moment. Let's, let's make sure everyone's drinking that in. Right? No, no. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who have to give an account. Now listen to the second part. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Titus 3, it's about submission to rulers and authorities, similar to here, but let's read that in verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. That's verse 1, but it continues. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The reason why I showed you these particular verses is because it's certainly a, a good example of the call of submission for different individuals to different authorities placed above them by God's sovereign design. But in the midst of that, it implies that submission is not merely obedience, but it is helpful obedience with a gracious attitude. Right? Whether it was in Ephesians 5, and we saw it flows out of this giving of thanks and appreciation for what Christ has done for us. Whether it's Hebrews 13 there, where we obey our leaders in the church, we do, but we do it with joy and not with groaning. Whether it's in Titus 3, where we are submissive to our rulers, but we, are, we do that with gentleness, and we do that showing perfect courtesy towards all people. This is the concept of submission, and it's a command here in Romans. So you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, you know, submission is a clear command. It is. But are there not exceptions? It, I, I think in the flow of thought, it would have been helpful for us to talk about the exceptions later. But because it's such a heavily packed um, idea, especially now, because it is, it is so tender to many hearts, we, we might approach some of them here. Because the question is, okay, submission to governing authority, submission, period. What does it not mean? What does it not mean? Let me give you a few things, a couple of things that it does not mean. It does not mean quiet subservience. Whether we're talking about children in the way that they obey parents, wives um, um, uh, submitting to their husbands, um, members submitting to their leaders, it doesn't mean mere quiet subservience subservience instead there are times when the christian must speak up not remain quiet even towards governing authorities we have an example of that in the book of daniel we have many examples actually in the book of daniel but in daniel 5 remember belshazzar who is the son of nebuchadnezzar he 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 sees This writing, this hand literally writing something on the wall. And so he brings in Daniel to interpret it. And this is what Daniel says to him in Daniel 5, verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, all the things that God had done with your father Nebuchadnezzar. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, from the vessels that came from God's temple. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So there's a time to speak up, even against, even against powerful political figures. Mark 6, 18, John the Baptist had been telling Herod regularly, apparently, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So whatever submission means, because I I think it seems to imply universally that this is God's will for all those that follow after the law of God. In all time. So I don't think Daniel was in sin. I don't think John the Baptist was in sin. I think the idea that submission is merely subservience and keep your mouth shut is incorrect. It is to speak up when speaking up is necessary. It is also not, right, in our list of what submission does not mean, does not mean passive endurance of injustice. It doesn't mean we just tolerate things that are wrong. Instead, Christians should oppose illegal treatment of anybody even if it's done by those in authority or power we should expose things that are wrong or sinful in the midst of a very sinful and illegal trial jesus in john 18 to 23 remember um, that they strike jesus and jesus says when he had said these things one of the officers standing by struck jesus with his hand saying is that how you answer the high priest and jesus answers him this way If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you you strike me? What Jesus is saying is, is that legal for you? Because it's not. Not in a Jewish court, right? Is it legal for you to strike me if I am not guilty of anything? Is it legal for you to strike me because of of my response if I am telling the truth? Because if you feel like I'm lying, you have an opportunity to prove that. You don't just strike somebody right? I got to expose your illegal treatment here. Paul similarly, when in Acts 23, when he is, uh, when he is in the court, right, before the Sanhedrin, Paul says to somebody after somebody strikes him, he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting in to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Paul is a little less gracious than our Lord, right? <laughs> he, calls, uh, he calls them a whitewashed wall, and he kind of goes at them a little bit, but look, listen to his point. Contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And then later on in Acts, or not later, earlier, in Acts 16, right? When it is the Roman government, when it's the secular government that, that imprisons Paul and beats him publicly, Paul says this. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. He appeals to what is the legal procedures of being a Roman citizen. Do you see that? So he's not just passively enduring injustice. Jesus is not just tolerating and just saying, okay, well, injustice happens. What can I do? I just gotta I just gotta be a pacifist and take it. No, they speak up. They speak out. And they oppose those those uh those illegal and wrong treatment, um, the misuse of power against individuals um that 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 they experience. So it's not passive endurance of injustice. In fact, I think uh the case of scripture in scripture you'll see that i think we can make a case that we should take up whatever legal means of of appeal is available to us that's what happens in acts 25 we talked about how how paul right he appeals to caesar that's a legal term what is happening is paul feels like he's like you know the romans don't know what to do with them so they're just going to throw him to back to the Sanhedrin and let the Jews do whatever they want with him. And obviously the Jews have made it clear that they're going to put him to death. So what does Paul do? He uses the legal system as well as he could. He makes a legal appeal and he says, I do not seek to escape death if I deserve to die. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. So I appeal to Caesar and that means that he will be expedited to appear before Caesar's court. And, uh, and to get a hearing there. If there are possible legal appeals, I think the Christian is, is, is allowed to go and pursue those. In our society, in our government, in our system of democracy, that, that means you can vote. And you can encourage people to vote against certain individuals you think are doing a poor job. Right? You, you could stand in front of Target, right, and try to get people to sign petitions. That's allowable. That's the, you could peaceably protest. If it's legal and peaceable, of course you could protest. That's part of our system of government. It's allowable. Whatever is allowable to make legal appeals, I think the Christian is free to do that. And Christian, if that's not your cup of tea, be mindful that you're not judging your fellow believer, your fellow brother or sister in Christ, because that is. Because they feel impassioned about that. And and brother or sister, if you are impassioned about these things to where you want to do these things, that's okay, but make sure that you're mindful that doesn't remove the call for biblical submission. You're operating under submission to God-ordained government while at the same time you are expressing your concerns for injustice, your concerns for things that that shouldn't be done your concerns for things that are not right or good or excellent and you're using legitimate means to express that concern as citizens of our country might do and if everything goes super sideways if things get real bad if someone like nero comes into power if if none of these other means of resisting injustice and in government authority is possible christian you have every right to flee you do Matthew ten twenty three, Jesus tells them, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He's like, if you need to, you remove yourself from harm. Right? You don't just, you don't just take it. That's not what submission means. Acts 9, verses 23 to uh, uh, 25, the Jews are plotting to kill Paul. And when their plot became known to Paul in verse 24, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a basket. If you can escape, unjust persecution, escape. What submission does not mean is that we just merely take or tolerate all kinds of evil. It doesn't mean quiet subservience. It doesn't mean that, even in terms of our marriage relationships, our wives submit to their husbands as good Christian women, and they don't do it because by by just shutting their mouths and not. No, sometimes as a Christian, as a sister in Christ, some of these wives have to rebuke you, have to rebuke me. Not very often. Not very often. <laughs> no, that has to happen sometimes, right? because we're still struggling with our flesh and sin, and so they have to be our equals in in speaking out against things that are not right. That is part of their partnership. That is part of what submission encompasses, but in the end, submission means that I recognize the authority God has placed above me, and I'm going to do my best to work under that with a gracious and Christ-like attitude. Well, that's all submission as a clear command. Okay, okay, I figured it out. We just got to go backwards. See, backwards. Yes, all right. Secondly, submission has a notable exception, right? So there is a time when submission is a no-no. For the Christian, when submission means breaking God's law, that's when we say no, all right? And the famous passage that we all know comes from Acts chapter 5. Um, the Jewish leaders say, "We strictly charged you uh, not to teach in in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us." But Peter and the apostles answered, "We must obey God rather than man." So this is that one notable exception that every Christian, I think, understands right from the get go is that if, if government or authority or even a Christian husband right, or Christian father commands or demands of us to do something that is contrary to God's moral law, to something that God has said is, is wrong, they've, they've encouraged us to do something that is sinful, then we have not just the right, we have a responsibility to say no again it doesn't change that perspective of our attitude of grace towards those in authority but we still say no and we have plenty of examples of that right i'll give you a few we have the egyptian midwives in exodus 1 do you remember that when uh, they served as uh, midwives uh, to the children and they were kill- they're ordered to kill every son that's born among them but in 117 it says but the midwives feared god and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The other example of that, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, when they're told to bow down, right, um, uh, to this golden image, and they say, right, um, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Daniel himself, in Daniel chapter 6, when they particularly pass a law that you can't pray to any god except to King Darius, right? For a period of time. And they do that because they're trying to entrap Daniel. So what does Daniel do? He should do what, what I would do. You close your windows and you continue to pray, right? So no one could see you. They don't have cameras back in those days. No drones, right? Now instead... Daniel 6.10 says that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So don't pray and pray to false gods. No, right? Or even in the book of Esther, Um, when she sees some great evil that is about to take place, she goes to speak to the emperor. And when she goes to speak to the king, she says this, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. There are times when we will break the law in order to keep God's law or to do what God has desired of us to do in terms of his righteousness and his goodness. But make sure you don't conflate your preference, and God's law. It, you have to almost be able to go text and verse, right? You, you have to be able to demonstrate that there is a passage that informs you that this is something that you must do. And this is why you disregard, right, the, the authority of the state over your life. Subject, be subject. Oh, sorry, oh, that's right. Wait. be subject. To governing authorities, right? And let me go back to this. It's a clear command. I think it's hard to get around that in the first part of verse one. And submission does have a very notable exception. Well, that's point one. Point two is the second part of verse one, and it's recognized authority as God ordained. Now, this becomes then the basis. Look at look at the second part of verse one. It starts with for there is no authority. It starts with for as a basis or an explanation for why the first part appeals to us we are to be subject to governing authorities and you might ask why well here's the explanation for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God there is no authority apart from God and that's a very strong theological statement in fact if we were to translate that more literally it would go something like this for there's no authority if not from God. In in other words, Paul's point is that theologically speaking, the thing to embrace in terms of what Scripture says about who God is and who we are, regardless of what government we live under, crazy Neronian persecution, or I only want to say crazy, right? But crazy or maybe not so crazy, depending on where you come from, right? Um, um, You know, American democracy. Regardless of what authority structure you come under, there is no authority if it's not been granted by God himself. I want you to notice a subtle shift there too because it goes from the, the, the per first part of verse 1, right? When it says authorities, plural, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, plural. And here it says, for there is no singular authority except from God. And I think Paul does that to say that there is a vast variety of governing authorities, plural. And he's saying, and here, every particular form and component, every singular authority is also still from God. You get the point? It's not just the various kinds of governing authorities that God generally sets up human beings to have government, but no part of government exists except for God. We'll see in a moment, in the, in starting in verse... Uh, um, uh, well, in the second part of this uh, verse, verse 1, we'll see that I think that includes every individual officer. But, but this, is, this is the contention here. One, the contention of Scripture is that God is the ultimate authority. I throw out a few verses, and we could go endlessly about God's sovereignty and His control over all things. But Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. All the Lord's, every human being, Every animal, every leaf, every cell, every molecule, it's all the Lord's. Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over the heavens? No, over all over this world, over the heavens, over the spiritual realm, over everything. God is absolutely sovereign. In Daniel 4, 35, it speaks of all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. None can say, oh, no, 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 Lord, don't touch that. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because it's all God's. He is the final and absolute authority. And it is that sovereign God that has established every government and all its component parts. Acts 17, 26, Paul is addressing Areopagus or, or Mars Hill where all the philosophers and, and all the, the think tanks of the world assemble. And in his, in his speech to them, this is part of what he says, Acts 17, 26, and he, talking about God, has made from one man, who is that, Adam, Every nation, God is the one that has made nations of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now, listen to this part. Having determined allotted periods, so that's a time period of the different nations and rules and governments, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's the literal boundaries, the political boundaries of every kingdom that has ever existed. God is sovereign. And anything that is authority or governing authority has been established by him. There is no governing authority apart from God has allowed it. God has declared it to be. And that's a heavy theological, theological truth. Because then that, that, if that is true, and that is clearly true because that's what is taught here in Scripture, then you can see why Paul, if we back up one, right? We can see why Paul says, let every person be subject to, To the governing authorities, even if it's Nero, because God is still in control, right? God is still in control. So let's take a let's take it a step further. Oh, sorry, I was supposed to show you that. Never mind, right? Every office instituted, every office is instituted by God. See, it's not just that every authority that there is no authority that uh, that uh, that exists apart from God allowing it. Of God ordaining it, but we could say more. The second part of this, you know, or this last part of verse one, and those that exist, talking about these these authorities, have been instituted by God. Those that exist is literally a, a, a participle. It means the existing ones, and it probably refers to every human officer, right? From the meter maid, as uh, as you know, as an agent of our government all the way to the presidency, right? Um, every single part. <clears throat> it means that the existing ones, every person, has similarly been instituted by God. It's God who has instituted them. It's the word tasso, and it means to place something or put them in a particular arrangement. God has literally appointed them, instituted them. He has ordained each person in positions of authority, according to his sovereign design and wisdom. Yeah. We'll say a couple things about this in a moment. But take that both, right, no authority except that it comes from God, right? and that every officer has been divinely appointed by God. You take all of that, then what you end up with is that, is that all governing authority is derived from God and his authority. Right, In every instance, in every part, in every person that's part of those governing authorities have been sovereignly ordained by God himself. See, that means that our democratic system of government, God God sovereignly ordained that. Our constitution and the various levels um, of laws and ordinances, God has sovereignly ordained that for this period of time. Our, Our president, members of Congress the supreme court i mean we might we might suspect that there's some foul play in how individuals get into positions of power etc nevertheless right poisoned mushrooms whatever it is god is nevertheless he has he has sovereignly ordained that every state re- representative down to your state governors right mayors I mean, these might be hard on some of us, but th- that's God's ordained plan for this period of time. Point is that there is not just the whole government structure, that God has ordained government to be good and to keep the peace, but that every constituent member and part is still under God's sovereign rule. Daniel uh, 2, listen, If if this is an area that you want to kind of lean into a little bit more closely daniel would be a fantastic book for you right so filled with examples of how to deal with pagan unbelieving governors and officials and to do that righteously to oppose some of their perspectives and some of the sinful things that they do in a way that honors the lord right Uh, even when we showed uh, we, we we read the example of daniel's friends right right shadrach meshach and abednego or daniel himself never just kind of like how dare you 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 are you going to hell right it's not that kind of abrasiveness it's always with the grace to say god can rescue us if he chooses and if he doesn't choose we still won't bow right it's oh you pass that law probably not a good idea but i have to go disobey right There's this attitude that demonstrates that even in in having to resist or rebel, they do it in a way that honors the God who is in control of all things. But Daniel 2, verse 21, it talks about how God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel five twenty one talks about how um, this is after Nebuchadnezzar turned into a cow. Remember, he was all crazy. His hair was long. His fingernails got all long, and he was just eating grass. That's not normal, right? Something was wrong with that guy. What? Why did that happen? Well, Daniel five twenty one says he was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the heavens until he knew. That the Most High, it means the exalted God, right? The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. I I suspect that none of you guys are going to argue the point in Scripture that God is king of the universe. But can I remind you that he is sovereign over even every elected official, every appointed official. Even over officials that got there by some shady means. See, there are different views of the origin of government in human history. There's the evolutionary view, which says that we kind of grew into it. Like, dads were strong, so they took, protected their family group. And then they, they kind of teamed up with their neighbors and became clans. And clans became villages. And eventually, we kind of just grew into, like, governance of nations and large peoples. There is the, the, the force theory, That is to say, the government arose because certain individuals were strong and then they leaned in on their strength and basically forced submission upon others. And a slight derivation of that, more modernly, is Marxist theory or critical theory, which uh, views everything as an issue of oppressor and oppressed. There's There's the divine right theory that says that this is by divine right. But there, there could be some truth to that, but they, they mean it this way, that God has vested certain lineage, certain peoples with the divine right of rule. And so it usually results in some kind of succession. You're born into the right family. You come from the right lineage. Then you have a right to rule. And most often those, those sinners, they're like us, right, found that power to be delectable. And they usually, you know, try to gain more power, more territory, more wealth. Divine right theory. And then we, our country, kind of flows out of something called a social contract theory. And the idea is simply this, that government kind of developed out of an agreement that there should be some that look after the common good and the rest of us that help support, right, those leaders. There's an agreement, there's a contract. You take care of us and we support you. It's kind of where our Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, those things kind of flow out of that. Now you can see in each of those there are some positive kind of analysis of how human beings conduct themselves. But what God's Word says here clearly and throughout Scripture is that human government was established by God. Deuteronomy 32.8 when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, that's the nations, that's not the nation of Israel, but the nations, the Gentile pagan world and their governments. When, he, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. He placed them where he wanted to place them. And we already looked at Acts 17, where Paul says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. All governments, every official, and everything that is in power right now or at any time in human history, established by God. The good ones and even the bad ones. We'll talk about that in a moment, right? We need, to, we need to rush through the rest of verse 2 here. Verse 2. So we need to recognize authority as God ordained no authority exists except from God and every office and officer has been ordained by God right? so our third point don't oppose God appointed authority so verse 2 is now going to get very specific to to how we are to understand the consequence or the implications of this theological truth from verse 1. Therefore is the implication, the consequence, right? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. All right, simple, right? Oh, okay. I guess I, I have a couple more additional points and I don't have it there for some reason. It's okay. Don't resist God-appointed authority. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. There, there's a wordplay going on in verses one and two that is interesting, right? Um, uh, the base word, the root word, is tasso, and it means to place or to arrange. Right? Uh, we saw it in uh, in verse uh, earlier in verse one when it says uh, there there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been they have been placed right they have been set up by god but you add a prefix and then earlier right it speaks of hupotasso which is to say that you place right yourself under or beneath Uh, it's the under placing it's the place yourself beneath the authority of another and that's the word that we translate as our command in the first part of verse one let every person be subject hupotasso so let us be subject, hupotasso, because God is the one that has, has set up or placed in its appointed location, tasso. And then here, therefore, whoever resists that first word is anti-tasso. It's to rebel or to push against that which has been placed. And if we take it in the context of here, the word play, plays out what God has instituted, we are pushing against. And he's saying, whoever resists authority, right, resists God and what he has appointed. Rebellion against any government and government official is rebelling against God's authority. Now, now back that up, right? Because we had already said that there are legitimate means for us to engage when government is not doing what it's supposed to do. But nevertheless, we are still to live in submission to them and to simply toss our submission aside and say, no, I don't need to. God says is like tossing God's authority aside. All right? Now, let me say this. It doesn't mean that God necessarily approves of the character of every ruler or that he approves of the method of their particular rise to power. Douglas Moo, in his excellent commentary, says it this way. From a human perspective, rulers come to power through force or heredity or popular choice, but the transformed mind, that's us, the gospel-inspired, recognizes behind every such process is still the hand of God. Every ruler and every government will be held accountable. Again, you go back to Daniel 5 and the story with Belshazzar, God has written on the wall with his hand mene mene Teco parson and so he's like dude what does this mean and he brings in Daniel and as Daniel interprets it he interprets each of the words mene God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to its end "Teco you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting Paris your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians that middle one techo is interesting you have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting God holds every government and every government official accountable. And those who resist God's ordained, appointed power, the warning is the last part. They will incur judgment. All government is established ultimately by God. It's not to say that even bad governments are, are God's example of trying to be bad. Not at all. But they are his agents, the scriptures will tell us in the next few verses. They are his ministers, the scriptures will tell us. And we are to uh, obey despite the fact that they, they are not Christian. Let me give you two quotes, and we'll have to close it off here. John Calvin says it this way, We're not only subject to the authority of princes who perform their office towards us uprightly and faithfully as they ought, but also to the authority of all who perform not a whit of the prince's office. They who rule unjustly and incompetently have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people. A wicked man should be held in the same reverence and esteem by his subjects insofar as public obedience is concerned in which they would hold the best of kings if they were given to them. That's kind of strong.